If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be flipping all over the Bible today. So uh, if you grew up in church and you were like Bible drill master, today's your day to show off your skills. If you didn't, like me, don't worry. Uh, we'll have the verses up here. And don't be afraid to use your table of contents. I was super intimidated to use my table of contents as, as a young Christian because my friends didn't have to. Um, but it's to- there's no shame in using the front of your, bo- your Bible to figure out where these books are. Um, but before we get started, this today, this Sunday, we're starting a four-week series on Advent and just kind of leading up to Christmas. It will end at our Christmas Eve service because Sunday's Christmas Eve um, on the 24th. And so we will have service on the 24th. We will be here. It'll be the last um, sermon on uh, our series of Advent. And we're going to go through what Advent is and why we celebrate and why it's on the Christian calendar um, and, and why we do it here at the Grove. But today we're going to really just focus in on the beginning of Advent and, and what this whole season is really about because it's a, there's a lot going on in our culture when it comes to Christmas um, that can rob us of, of the joy that is to be had from this season. And so we're going to dive in and, and, and really talk about what this season is because if we were really honest with ourselves and we could go back to last Christmas or Christmases as children um, and, and just look into our hearts, we, we, you know, you get to the end of Christmas and you, you open up all the presents, you, presents, you finish the ham or turkey or whatever, and you're like, there's this sense of like, is that it? Like, is that, is that all that this is about? Is that really what is going on here? And so um, there's this, this sense that there's more to Christmas than presents, than Santa Claus, than... Um, than, than ham, although ham is really good, um, and we'll have ham tonight. So um, there's more to it, and, and the fact is that this season, as much as it's celebrated and it's about, this, about families, the fact is that this season doesn't always bring families together. Uh, sometimes it brings families together just to blow them apart on Christmas Day, um, and, and it kind of ruin everything. And so this, this season doesn't necessarily, just because it's Christmas, bring families together. Um, sometimes it blows them far, farther apart. Sometimes you don't get everything you want, or you do get everything you want, and you realize that you wanted more. Um, and so the season, really, when we talk about Christmas and what our culture has created Christmas to be, it's just a shadow of something that's, that's different, and it's just a shadow of what the season's really about. And so today, we're going to try and wrap our arms around the substance of Christmas, the substance of Advent, because um, the reality is because Christmas is just a shadow, you really can't wrap your arms around a shadow, right? But we're going to try and wrap our arms around the substance that is Christmas. So starting today, our first week of Advent, um, we are going to try and get our mind and hearts around this idea of hope, um, this idea of hope. Now, I know full well that 30, 40-minute sermon um, is not a lot to contend with everything that commercials will throw at you this season, everything that um, the internet will throw at you, this onslaught of sensory information that we're going to get. Um, but we're going to try and wrap our mind around hope today. Um, and my task in getting us there and understanding hope is going to be impossible without the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that is, is because hope has this idea of patience and waiting, um, promises and patience, patience and waiting, right? There's this idea around hope that you're hoping for something that's not there yet. You know something's coming, but it hasn't happened yet, so you have to have patience that the promise will come. And, and so um, we don't live in an age of patience anymore, right? I'm 28 years old, which might shock some people, but I'm 28 years old, which isn't, which isn't old. 
Um, but even I remember a day when if I was younger and I wanted to go to the movie theaters, you had a couple options to figure out what was playing at the movie theater. The first one was you got a newspaper. Does everyone know what a newspaper is? It's this, it's this paper you open it up and you had to go to your movie theater and you'd find what you wanted to watch through the times are. If, if, if you had a movie theater that wasn't, didn't make the paper because it wasn't big enough, there was another option. Don't freak out. There's another option. You had to pick up the telephone and call this number. Now, the problem with calling that number was that if, you, if someone else in your town decided to call that number first, you'd call the number and all you'd get was a busy signal. So you had to hang up and hit redial. Or if you were like my parents, we had a rotary phone. So redial wasn't an option. I had to like go through the whole thing again and try and get there and do that for like 30 or 40 times till finally you're the one at the right moment who got through the movie theater. The third option, the only other option we really had was to actually just go get in the car and say like, you know what? Seven's like a normal time that movies start around. Let's just go there at seven. So you get there or let's get there at 630 because seven's a good time. So you get there at 630. Like, oh, hey, look, something's playing at 715. Let's go across the street. We'll get some food. We'll eat. And then we'll come back and watch 715 show. And so that was how we had to do. There was no patience. Today, you just go on the internet and you just get there. That, I mean, but this was life as I knew it. Um, if, if you needed to do homework and um, do some research, there wasn't an internet yet that was widely available. You had to go to something called an encyclopedia. Uh, we had the Britannica series, which I wasn't really like. I was uh, patriotic as a young person. I didn't like that we had Britain's encyclopedia. I thought we should have our own, but that was um, something I argued with my dad a lot growing up. But not really. We didn't argue about it. But uh, we had Encyclopedia Britannica. We had to like, you had to get the right letter for the thing you were looking up and look it up. There was no Wikipedia. But we've, we've, we're, we're trained right now in our environment for something different. Because as much as I had to go to an encyclopedia, I'm not even that old, and I still had to go to an encyclopedia to, to figure out things, to get information for reports. Right now, on your phone, in your pocket, you have all the information there is. Not some of it, not, not everything about technology. You have all the information there is in your pocket. Like think about what we would have thought about that 20 years ago when you're, you've got like two shelves full of encyclopedias for just some of the information. And now you can fit all the information there is in a phone. We've trained ourselves that we have access to information. We don't need to wait. I mean, if you want to know who sings that song you heard in the radio, you can find out in seconds. You don't have to just go weeks until you finally remember who plays that song. My wife does this all the time. We'll watch a movie, and she's like, oh, that, I recognize that guy. He, he's in something else. And she'll interrupt the whole, it ruins the movie experience for me. She'll pull out her phone, and she'll, she won't even watch the movie anymore. She'll just be scrolling, trying to figure out, oh, he's in this. You used to not be able to do that. Before, you would just be like, that guy's in a movie somewhere. And two weeks later, you'd be like, man, I, figured, I finally figured out what movie he was in. But now you can just figure it out right away. So patience isn't something we have. I mean, last quick anecdotal uh, here about this. Uh, I find myself, personally, as I go somewhere, like I go, this used to be my in-law's house. They got faster internet. But I used to go there and like, I pull up the internet and I like connect to their Wi-Fi and like try and go somewhere. And after like six seconds of clicking on a link, I'm like, what is this, 1992? Like, can't we get some faster Wi-Fi in Spruce Pine? But it's, it's better now. They have a charter cable and so it's good. Um, they've come into the 2000s um, recently. But when we, when we go to the word of God and we see that God has made these promises and these promises haven't come to fruition yet 2,000 years later, 
it causes some problems. I mean, like we can even know and believe that God is faithful and he will fulfill these promises, but we don't like the timeline. We don't like his timing at all. And, and, and we struggle with that because we are in an age where we don't have to wait anymore. You don't have to wait. You can have your food delivered. You can figure out all these things in an instant. And he operates on a timeline that we don't really care for. So we're going to look at some promises in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament and kind of talk about Advent. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. And we've gone over and over and over again about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the last four weeks because of our By Design series. But real quick, this idea of Genesis chapter 3 is that God creates this, this world and he puts people in it. He, he creates them to rule and to reign over the earth and all the, all the animals and the birds and the, and the plants. And, he get in, 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 and it's really good. Like everything is really good. The Bible gives us two whole chapters of good. Um, and then things just start to fall apart in chapter three. And the rest of the Bible is, is God's mission and plan to fix that. But there's this idea of shalom in the first two uh, chapters of the Bible. That idea of shalom is this idea of peace, this, this, this rhythm, this um, singular, singular rhythm of just things just working the way. Everything in the universe is just working the way it's supposed to be. This, the Bible explains the universe and human reality and how great it is way before sin enters, the, uh, and enters it and fractures it and destroys it. Now we believe um, in the middle of all that, that rhythm, in the middle of that shalom, sin entered into the world, rebellion against God and entered into that rhythm, that music, and it fractured it and ruined it. If you think about um, a, an orchestra and a conductor, he's like, oh, this, or everyone's playing their part and it's all going in rhythm and it sounds incredible, and that's what the first two chapters of the Bible is. Everything's going, everything's doing its part. Everyone's working the way they're supposed to. And then sin enters in and it just ruins the shalom. It ruins the, um, the rhythm, the music. Everything God created was good. And then here's what it says in verse, in chapter, Genesis 3, uh, verse 15. Um, what happens here, before we get there, what happens is that sin enters the world um, the, the, this rebellion against God's goodness, God's grace, God condemns the serpent. The serpent's the one who tricked Eve and, and tempted Eve into, into sinning against God. Um, and God will condemn the serpent. He condemns Adam and he condemns Eve and he lists for them what their condemnation is going to look like. And so I want us to look at what he says to the serpent. Um, and the serpent's this personification of evil. Uh, and so in death and suffering and sadness. So the Lord's going to judge the serpent or the personification of evil in this story, in Ch Genesis chapter three, starting in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now it sounds like uh, the serpent is being cursed, but let's, let's dig a little bit deeper um, than just a cursory uh, Reading. So he says to the woman that he's going that she's going to give birth to a or he says to the serpent that the woman's going to give birth to a son, and that son is going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to destroy evil, destroy death, destroy sadness. He's going to destroy, he's going to put to death once and for all all that went wrong in the garden. He's going to end it all. He's, he's saying, Your reign and your rule will come to an end. I'm going to crush your head through a man born of a woman. Now this is a promise for sure, but it's not this big build out of like the cross or um, uh, the gospel. It, it's just a, a hint at something greater. All we know now is that someday 
all things that, that have happened, all this sadness, all this sin, all this evil that's entered the world, someday it's going to end. It's going to end by a man who's born of a woman crushing its head. That's all we know. Now, let's be honest, that's not super specific. Like how many men here were born of a woman? I think all of us. Yeah, so it's not an incredibly specific promise. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God gives this really general promise that a man who's born of a woman will one day crush evil's head and end it all, put to death once and for all, all the evil in the world. Then, if you go to Genesis chapter 12, just a few chapters over, God's going to start putting some, some flesh on the bones here and start narrowing this, I, this promise down. So Genesis chapter 12 will be in verse 3, but, but what he's doing here is he's speaking to a, na- a, a, a man named Abram, who's going to later be Abraham. Do you guys know Abraham? He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. He's that guy. Abram's the guy we're talking about. He's beginning to tell Abram that what's coming for him, he's going to make him into a great nation. So verse three says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when it comes to the destruction of sin and death and all that went wrong, it's going to be of a man born of a woman. And now we're seeing that the whole earth's going to be blessed by this man's family. And so if, if you put this in context of the whole Bible, we start to narrow down that, that God started with Adam and Eve, that Eve, someone born of Eve, which is everyone, will crush the serpent's head. And now we're seeing that someone from Abraham's family is going to bless the whole world. So he's starting to narrow down this line of who is this person going to be? Who is this man going to be? It's going to be a Jew. We know for sure it's going to be a Jew now. Now we go to Genesis 49, and Genesis 49 is a super awkward family moment here. We'll, we'll look at verses, uh, starting in verse 8, but to give you some context before we get there, uh, it, what happens in Genesis is that uh, Jacob is calling together, Jacob had 12 sons, right? So he's calling together his 12 sons who are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're still in David's family now. He's got the 12 sons. They're going to be 12 tribes of Israel. He's calling them all together. And he's prophesying or blessing over his sons. Now, when it comes to a, a patriarchal system, the firstborn son usually gets everything. Like that. And, then, and then everyone else, the 11 other sons, would have just been begging for scraps after that. Um, and so Jacob calls together the first, all his sons. And usually the firstborn son gets the power, the money, the birthright, everything. Becomes the ruler of the family. And everyone else asks for everything. But Reuben was the firstborn son. And Jacob tells Reuben... Uh, this, isn't, this isn't there yet, but he says, you, hey, you're strong, you're bold, but you're, you're kind of unstable like water, and so I'm not going to give you the birthright. I'm not going to give you the birthright. And then he calls Simeon and Le- Levi, and, he, and he, he calls them. He says, you know what? You guys, you guys are pretty violent. Um, I wouldn't want to sit under your counsel ever, so I'm not going to give you the birthright either. So he's already gone three down. He's gone from Reuben, Levi, and Simeon. He's, got, he's, he's gone down to the fourth son, the fourthborn and he gets to Judah. And this is where we're going to pick it up in verse 8. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's sons shall, shall, shall bow down to you. Like that's, that's an, an awkward family moment, right? Like imagine you're this family of 12 sons. You're the fourth son. And your dad's saying, you're no good. You're no good. You're no good. I love you. You're going to get all the stuff. In fact, all of your brothers are just going to bow down to you. 
Like that's an awkward moment. Like that's, like you're, you might think it's awesome, but your brothers want to kill you at that point. And so it goes on. This is what happens next. He says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall the obedience of the peoples, shall be the obedience of the peoples. So we get down all the way to the end here, and we see that God made a promise that a man born of a woman will end, end evil, crush a serpent's head, that that person's going, that man's going to come from Abraham, he's going to be a Jew. And not only that, now we know that man, that that ruler, the scepter, that king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so through the story of the Bible, God's narrowing down and narrowing down who this man is going to be. Now this is at least talking about King David, but it's absolutely talking about the Messiah as well. Um, There's this idea that death, destruction, loss, disease, plague, calamities, all all this stuff that's going to be happening that's happened since, since evil has touched creation. God's saying, I'm going to crush it through a man in Abraham's family in the tribe of Judah. I'm going to end all of that. Now we'll flip over again. This time we're going to leave Genesis. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I'll give you guys some time to get there, but it'll be on the, up, up on the screen as well. But one of the interesting things about um, these messianic text is sometimes they talk about things that are currently happening and things that are going to happen in the future kind of interchangeably or even at the same time. So what we have to do to get to the bottom of what's being said is to lay this text, to lay it over history and see what has, uh, what was occurring then and what happens in the coming of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to see a perfect exam- example in, in, in here, Second Samuel, and also we're, we're going to turn to Isaiah a little bit later. But 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be a, to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him in the, with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from, put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there's two things that's happening here. One, one promise is to David, um, about the sons of his body and his sons. And those, and those promises were fulfilled. His, his son Solomon absolutely builds the house for the Lord. He builds the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and God absolutely deals with his iniquity in a way that spares, that doesn't spare him the rod, but loves him and discipline him so that he'll learn. But the throne of David is most absolutely established forever uh, through his boys. In fact, Judah and Israel, or it's not, in fact, Judah and Israel in just a few generations will actually cease to be nations. So that promise isn't talking to David specifically, but someone who's going to be from David's family later. And so, because because in just a few generations, Judah and Israel, the two nations here, will cease to actually be nations. They're going to be deconstructed, destroyed, sent off in exiles as slaves. They're going to be dispersed to the ends of the earth. And in fact, there's, there's, there's this Psalm 89. I don't have it up there, 
but Psalm 89, there's this sense that God made this promise that, that his throne, your throne will be there forever. You will always be king of Israel, king of, 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 uh, over Jerusalem. Your throne will always be there. But in just a few generations, they are dispersed across the world. And this Psalm 89 says, what, says, what about that promise you made to David? Like, we shouldn't be here in slavery. We shouldn't be, you promised that we would have a place forever. And so this, this text isn't talking about specifically David forever, but that someone, the Messiah, the one who's going to come and destroy evil, will be born of a woman, of Abraham's family, a Jew, out of the tribe of Judah, and a son of David. And so he's, he's further narrowing down who this person's going to come. Who is it going to be? And then Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 14. I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, it's, it's more towards the right. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 14. We're going to read some more messianic prophecies. Um, and, 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 and we're going to get to a point here, I promise. I know there's a lot of Bible flipping, but I want you to see what, our, what, what, what Israel had to have felt like when they're waiting thousands of years for these promises to happen. Isaiah chapter seven, starting in verse 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So Isaiah's point here that to be born of a virgin, there's been a lot of uh, confusion over this text because in Hebrew, that word uh, virgin just means young maiden. And so people say, oh, no, 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 they just made that virgin stuff up to fit fit what they thought it was saying. What it really was saying was a young maiden will give birth. Mary was a young, she was young. The only problem with that, it's not the fact that they're wrong about what the verse means or what the word means. The word absolutely just means young maiden. But the problem is, is that Isaiah is saying there's going to be a a sign. Being born of a young maiden isn't a sign. Like, I've been in the room twice when a child's born. I'm about to go in a third time in a couple weeks, hopefully. Um, Really, yeah, a couple weeks, hopefully. Less than a couple weeks. And and, and it is is miraculous. It is really amazing. Because there's a point there where there's just like three or four people, and let's say there's four people in the room, me, my wife, a doctor, and a nurse. There's four people in the room. And then there's a moment where there's five people in the room and no one came through the door. Like it is, it is, it is, it is miraculous, but it's not something that's unique to me and Margie. Like the stars didn't move. Wise men didn't come and try and give us gifts. I would have taken them. That would have been cool. Um, but they didn't, they didn't do that. There, was, there wasn't, a, that wasn't a sign. That wasn't this miraculous sign. Here, Isaiah is saying there's going to be a miraculous sign that will be born of a virgin. And that's important. But the second part is just as important as the first. It says, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Curds and honey, that might, not, that might seem really random, but that was the food of, of peasants, of poor people. And so he's narrowing down this promise and this prophecy even more. The one who's going to come and make all sad things untrue, as my son's Bible says, the one who's going to come and crush evil and end all this sadness is going to be born of a woman, of of Abraham's family, a Jew, from the tribe of Judah, one of David's sons, born of a virgin, and born into a poor family. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that, he was, that Jesus was laid in a manger. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that he was born into a carpenter's family because the Bible said so many years earlier that he was going to be born into a four, poor family because he's going to eat curds and honey. 
Now we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. It's just two chapters over. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he is going to make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilee of the nations. So this is a reference to northern Israel. The major, so, so, so northern Israel, the, 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 when, when armies would attack Israel, they'd come from the north and they'd go through northern Israel. And on their way down to lay siege to Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom, they would destroy these towns in northern, northern Israel. They would, they would pillage and rape and just take, take everything they wanted. And they'd go down and lay siege to Jerusalem. And if they, um, if they won the siege, then there was lots of, I mean, like they were now under control of these people. If they lost the siege and they had to return home, they'd go back through northern Israel and do it all over again. So northern Israel wasn't this like great place. No one really liked to live there. No one really wanted to be there because it's where all the armies came through to, to attack Jerusalem. And they would, I mean, it's not a place you want to build a house, right? It's not a place you want to live because um, you're, it's just going to get destroyed over and over and over again as armies march through it. Historically, it was such a place that the Jews looked at it as though God had contempt for that part of the country. But then he says in Isaiah chapter 9, no longer, he begins to mention this place called Galilee. And he's going to restore Galilee to glory. He's going to make Galilee a great place. And what, and we're, what do we know about Galilee? It's the place where Jesus' ministry took place. It's, 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 if you read through the Gospels, Jesus' primary place of ministry was Galilee. If you keep going in verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shul- for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramp- tramping warrior in battle tumult and-, and every garment rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. So this promise here is simple. This promise is that um, with the coming Messiah, peace will reign and rule where war, death, and loss once ruled. Uh, For people who have walked in darkness, for people who have been oppressed, for people who have been enslaved, for people who have endured hardship after hardship, freedom is coming, peace is coming. All the tools of war, the stench of death, all that that was used, all of that's gonna be used just to heat fires. There won't be a use for it anymore. It's all going to be over. And then he's going on to actually create some problems in, in verse 6 um, when, when Jesus, uh, in the first century, he's going to create some problems um, for Jesus here. In verse 6, he's going to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. This next part is crucial. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is the first time in the Bible where we know the Messiah isn't just a man, but the Messiah is God himself. See, up to this point in in Genesis chapter three, we don't know that it's going to be God coming born of a woman. We just know that a man's coming, born of a woman. He's gonna be of Abraham's family, a Jew. 
He's going to be from the tribe of Judah, or the son of David, born of a virgin. Now, for the first time, the Bible took a turn here. It's like a, it's like a plot twist. This whole time, the, the Israel's waiting for a Messiah. There's been hints, and there's been, but for the first time, just out in the open, the Bible says this Messiah, the one who's coming, who's born of a man, born of a woman, rather, who's coming is going, his name is going to be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So now we know God himself is coming because God himself is going to be uh, born of a woman, going to come from the line of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, being born in the house of David, where the scepter will never leave, and he'll be, he'll be acquainted with the poor, born of a virgin, and he's also God. So we have this idea of Emmanuel in chapter 7, God with us, but he's not just wonderful counselor, he's mighty God, he's God himself. God himself is coming to rescue his people. God himself is coming to make all the sad things untrue. God is, himself is coming to crush evil, to end death, to end loss, to end sadness. God himself is coming. And that's the good news. That's, that's what's happening here in the Bible. And, and that's what we're waiting for for Advent. And that's why we celebrate Advent. It was, there's, there's this longing, there was this waiting of the, of, of the people of earth, the, the people of Israel who were just waiting for this Messiah for thousands and thousands of years. They were being put into slavery and exiled and given these promises that this stuff should be ending. And they're waiting generation after generation for this promise to take place. And we know that it does. We'll, we'll keep reading in Isaiah here. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from his time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, one of the reasons why they thought Jesus was going to be a king who overthrew the, the Roman Empire with a mighty army and rule and, and reign like David did for 30 years uh, is because of this kind of prophecy. But they just misunderstood what God's kingdom was and what God's kingdom wasn't. So, um, until the second return of Christ, until Christ comes back, there's always going to be another Rome. Uh, Rome wasn't the problem. Rome existed because of sinful hearts. Tyranny and oppression uh, will always exist where hearts are broken and bent towards sin. Tyranny and oppression will always exist because of Genesis 3 until Jesus comes back. See, we can't just use government to solve all the problems. You can't, you're never going to be able to legislate morality. You can't. The, the law was never meant to fix what is broken. The law was created only to point out that we're criminals, and we're all criminals. If you don't believe it, just ask yourself how fast you drove here today. That's it, you're a criminal. Most of you probably are criminals just this morning. We're all criminals. The law was not meant to fix what is broken. It was meant to point out that we're criminals and we need this Messiah. We need this man born of a woman of the tribe of Judah, the line of Abraham, the house of David. We need this person to come. All right, so let's flip over to Isaiah 53 and we'll start landing this, this thing here because we have one problem still. We know who this man's gonna be now, right? So we, we have half the promise understood. We know that's gonna be a man born of a woman. We got that in the promise. Later we found out it was going to be of the, uh, the line of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, 
the house of David, acquainted with the poor, born of a virgin. But now we know it's going to be God himself. But how is he going to crush the head of the serpent? How is he going to end evil? How is he going to get rid of death? How is he going to free us from sin? How is he going to get injured while doing it? Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he was borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, he, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See, one of the greatest things here about this Messiah is that we have an empathetic high priest, that God himself coming to become a man, 100% man, 100% God, being born of a virgin to a poor family, being acquainted with grief, like he knows what we're going through. Like if, you, um, if you're suffering a loss, like he gets that. He's been through that. If you're, if you're suffering betrayal of a friend or a spouse or family, like he absolutely gets it. Betrayed by hundreds, betrayed by his own family. Like he understands that he's been betrayed by those closest to him. There's nothing you can point to and say, Jesus doesn't understand that. Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through because the Bible says that he bore your griefs. He is a man acquainted with sorrows, that we have an empathetic high priest. You might say, well, Zach, he was God. Yeah, but he was God. He was also a hundred percent man. Well, I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't either, but it's in the Bible, so I believe it. You keep reading chapter, uh, verse five says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that bought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he, he opened not his mouth and like a lamb he was led to the slaughter and like sheep that bore that be, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If you remember, you know maybe Easter time, you, you read the story of Easter, and you're like, why is Jesus not saying anything? Like he could totally just defend himself here. Pilate's asking these questions. The people are asking these questions. Yet he's not saying anything. This is why he wasn't saying anything. He was fulfilling prophecy. But there's this there's this idea here in this verse that there's this exchange that he took on our place, that he um, laid on him, it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. We'll keep going in verse nine. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted righteous, accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So there's this great exchange that we talk about almost every Sunday here at the Grove. There's this great exchange about 
you know, answers the question, how is this man going to destroy sin and death? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to die for us so that we don't have to. What he's going to do is he's going to take our sin and our iniquities, all the, all the bad things that we have done, and he's going to take those and lay them on himself, though he's done none of those things at all. He's going to take our place. There's this exchange where Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at you with your faith in Christ, that he sees you holy and blameless. And so, look, all of us here are criminals. All of us here have done wrong, and we're all guilty. It isn't, we're, all, we're all guilty. Every single one of us has sinned. We've fallen short. But for those who are in Christ, when God looks at them, Though you're guilty, he says you're not guilty. Though you're bl- you have blame, he says you're blameless. Though you're sinful, he says, I see you as holy because you've been washed by the blood of Christ. And then we've, we've read about this. And we talk about this over and over and over again. And verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So how will the nations be blessed? How does God solve our heart issue and the sin issue? It's not about Rome and overthrowing Rome or overthrowing the government, making a better government. But how does he solve it? He solves it by taking sin by taking the iniquity, the transgressions of our own heart onto himself and extending righteousness to us if we would repent, believe, and trust in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now this is the substance that creates the shadow. This is what creates the shadow of Christmas. This is why Christmas is filled with gift giving and all these things is because on, on, on this, this, this patience this hope ends with the greatest gift of all. After thousands of years of promises, God orchestrated, I believe that God is absolutely sovereign, so God orchestrated history and marched history through a a specific series of events to a specific time that there would be a family, Mary and Joseph, or starting to, you know, a young couple starting to make a family, Mary and Joseph, and that God would enter into that family as a man and, and 30 some odd years later, die a death that we should have died for us to give a gift that we can't earn. And that's the point of Christmas. That's the substance behind the shadow. That's why we celebrate. That's why we throw up lights. And, and some people sing, my, my, my brother sings Christmas songs after like starting July 5th. If July 4th is over, it's Christmas time in their house and they just start singing Christmas songs. The reason why there's so much joy, as much as people don't understand why there is, is because it's inherently rooted in this idea that we're waiting and we're still waiting. Now Jesus came, but that was just half. That was just half of it. Jesus, our belief as Christians is that Jesus will return. He will come back for his bride, the church, and he will take her with him. And he will set up a kingdom that will last forever and it will be a good kingdom and we'll live forever with him. And so until then, we are like brides with a wedding ring waiting for our groom to come rescue us, waiting for our groom to come with us, come get us. But here's the other thing that we can learn from this is a lot of us are waiting on other things in our life. A lot of us are waiting with varying degrees of, of patience. And I want us to, to, to think about this idea of Advent, this idea of waiting, 
of anticipating the coming of Christ, which is what Advent is, this idea of waiting is, is what are you waiting for in your life today? What are you waiting for, be it how patient or not? What are you waiting for? And are you trusting in God to bring it? Because there's times where I'm sure I know, based on the Psalms and the reading of Scripture, that the people of Israel didn't trust God. They didn't think this was actually going to happen. They didn't think he was going to make good on his promises. But we know, and, and God help us, but there's so many people who still don't believe that God ever made good on his promise. But he did, and he will. And so if you're here today and you're waiting for something, maybe it's not even a scriptural thing, you just think you should have something, or think you want something, and God just wants us to be patient and trust him. Whether that's 2,000 years, because we've been waiting 2,000 years since Christ left for Christ to return. And that's a long time. But the good news here is that God in Scripture tells us why he's waiting to return. The reason why Christ hasn't returned yet is because there are more people to come into the church to become a bride of Christ. That's why he's waiting. That's why he hasn't come back yet is because he's waiting for there's, there's more to be saved, more to be drawn in, and more to be rescued. And if you're here waiting today, although the reason why you're waiting might not be pinned in Scripture, I can tell you that there's a reason why you're waiting. I don't know what it is, but, but Saint, uh, or what people call St. Augustine or Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, uh, says that this life on this earth is like having your face pressed up against a stained glass window. And to you, all it looks like is a bunch of random colors and jagged edges. That's all you can see, and it makes no sense to you. But as you pull away from the stained glass window, what you can see is a beautiful picture And that's our life on this earth is that we are pressed up against life. We are pressed up against the things of our our life. And to us, it could just look like a bunch of random messy colors and jagged edges and sharp sharp corners. But as as you pull back and you get God's eye view over it, there's something beautiful being done. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it's being done. But I can tell you that for those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes, that God works together all things for their good. And that good is to become more like Christ. Let's not mistake that good to, be, to become more prosperous or to make more money or to have a better life, but it is to have more joy because the more we're like Christ, the more joy we'll have in our life. It's not happiness. Happiness is fleeting, but the more joy we'll have in our life. So, my hope is, is that we, we continue to go through Advent, that our heart, our hope, will dwell on these things this week, that we would believe the promises of God, that we would know and believe in him. And so we'll sing a couple songs. They're Christmassy songs uh, so that you can stand and sing or or whatever you guys want to do. Um, And then I'll come back up and pray at the end. Let's pray. Father, I just, uh, I just come before you, Lord, just thankful for this season, God. Um, I'm thankful that our, our hope this Advent um, is, is that you are enough for us, that you're faithful and you will finish what you've started, God. And I pray that you, you that your Holy Spirit, God, Holy Spirit, I pray you would just stir that up in us this week, God, that we would focus and, and meditate on that truth that, that, that God is enough, that that God is faithful and he'll finish what he starts. 
His promises will be kept. Lord, we're thankful um, that no matter how long it takes, no matter how long um, it took, Lord, that your timeline is best, and I pray that we would trust you and uh, be faithful to you, God. God, I pray for the people here today um, that as they go into this season, that you would just bless them, God, that they would be able to be uh, a witness to their family, to the community around them, Lord, that this is what Christmas is about. This is what Advent season is about, Lord. So I pray that you would just bless these people this week at work as they go, and um, you'd be with them and you'd keep them, God. And I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys.